out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the American post-punk new wave band Romeo Void, because I recently spoke to their bass player, Frank Zinkovich, to find out more about life, love and poetry. And also, this is very exciting, they have an album that's coming out April 2023 as part of Record Store Day. This is um, titled Live from the Buddha Gardens. This was recorded the 14th of November 1980. That, dear listener, is only 43 years ago. Anyway, it's 11 track uh, vinyl album which is going to be fantastic so buy a copy it might just change your life but anyway this is the interview with frank so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years frank it's over to you well uh, i mean my you know uh, uh, growing up in in the u.s especially and in southern california um i started listening to music as a kid my mom we had a little web core uh, record player that would play 45s and LPs. And she had, we had, um, uh, Peter and the Wolf, you know, the, the orchestra yes. and, and a Burl Ives record. And that was the first time I, I was learned, you know, heard songs like, um, uh, Long Black Veil, you know, Ooh, which is, yes. which is a, a classic, you know, folk song and the band and other people have done, you know, even Nick Cave has done a version of it. Even um, and so, and then there was, you know, Southern California, the surf beach boys and hot rod songs. And so that was, you know, I think one of my first records was a, 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 a compilation record called shut down, which had beach boys and Robert Mitchum's version of, uh, uh, the Ballad of Thunder Road and and all these sort of motorcycles uh, type songs. And and this was all, you know, pre-Beatles. And I remember hanging with a friend who bought all the, like, the Beach Boys 45s and listening to Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. But then it was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones really got me to want to play an instrument. Yes. You know, that was... And you know what is that like? Sixty four was the 60, yeah 64. and then the yeah. Kinks came along as well, didn't they? And uh... well, there was the whole thing. I mean, there was the you know the whole British invasion, all of you know. So uh, and 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 in those days, you could on AM radio in the car driving with your mom and dad in the car you could hear the Beatles, you could hear the Supremes, you could hear the Temptations, you could hear the Kinks, you could hear um, uh, Roger Miller, you know. uh, You know, so I just had this, you just heard everything, basically. The only thing I was not that familiar with at a younger age was, was jazz. I didn't have anyone you know, in my circle listening to jazz. and cool. Cool beat. It, So the beat yeah. generation hadn't quite crept into your consciousness at this stage? Um, no, I mean, well, there was Dylan and Joan Baez. I mean, it's it just like everything that was there at that time, I was hearing, you know, Peter, Paul and Mary, uh, you know, the, the TV shows all had um, all all those type of things. But yeah, I wasn't really, you know, I wasn't into like Jack Kerouac and, and, um, uh, uh, what's his name? The other poet, um, 
Ginsburg. Ginsburg, and you know, and that wasn't really on my radar until uh, until a little bit later. So, when you start following back, you know, like, oh, well, oh, Bob Dylan knew these people. Oh, well, who were they? And you yeah. know, so I, I, it was just, it, it was always this whole conglomeration of things. And uh, but I think it was like blues and the rolling stones that got me to pick up a bass guitar because my brother i have a a, a one-year-older brother and he, he was playing guitar right and classical music lessons and and uh, and i thought okay bass i only have one note <laughs> i don't have to learn chords and so i picked up bass although i do remember you know one christmas asking for a snare drum and practicing trying to learn uh even though it was, you know, I realized much later how, you know, I was trying to learn the the drum part for Get Off My Cloud. Right. You know, it had that, you know, boom, bat, boom, bat, you know, little roll. Yeah. And, and, you know, so that's, you know, I really did start focusing on, yeah, how do I, you know, how can I play an instrument? And um, throughout that period, I, I never got, did a whole lot with it, but um you know, after high school, I managed to get uh, a, a good bass guitar and a, and, a, and an amp, and did some shows playing with my brother's band. Yeah, and then and then I was always into art. I was always drawing. And in high school, I learned how to throw pots, do ceramics, and so then I went off to uh, what they call community college or junior college after high school. Yeah, and just made my living for quite a while as a potter making you know planters and macrame were a big thing and so i was just doing that and pretty much didn't do any playing but still kept up on all the music i mean you know uh, found out about the you know the whalers and and what what the heck is that bass player doing yeah. <laughs> Yes. You know, what is that? How is he, you know, where do you count? There is no one there, you know. So were people yeah. like Sly and Robbie, did they suddenly come into your consciousness and you went, mm, interesting, I like not Not as much. It was more of the Whalers and, and um, you know, the film Harder They Come. Right, Jimmy Clear. Came yes. out. And so it, it wasn't so much knowing individual musicians as just knowing this music. Yeah, And then... Um, Again, living in Southern California, uh, the whole Asylum Records, you know, Jackson Brown, Eagles, you know, you start, start hearing all that. And then a, a friend of mine was working at this record store in a, a, a little town called Lucadia, and the owner was British. And all of a sudden, I'm like hearing Brian Eno and Roxy Music and... Uh, Alice Cooper and you know all these other things and and I'm like God, what that first Roxy music record like look at these guys <laughs> these guys are really weird you know but then like wow this stuff really is interesting music you know and and so I just kept listening to you know all this stuff that came along you know yes. it, it was you know so were your were your parents at all artistic or um you know they had an interest in you know, poetry, painting, you know, music themselves. Did they have an you know impact or influence on you? My father, he would paint. Um, he did oil paintings, you know, uh, evenings and weekends. 
uh, he would paint desert scenes. He would have postcards and paint a desert scene, or he had postcards of the California missions, and he would paint the missions. And then at uh, Christmas, he would always do, you know, we had classic um, uh, American home with a, a big garage door, and he would he would paint a big Christmas scene like snowman or the nativity on plywood. Ooh, nice. And put it up on the garage door for Christmas, and and then he also did some woodworking. So I I was always aware of that kind of stuff, and yeah. he always encouraged uh, my brother and I any art orientation. And then my mom played piano, and mm. at one point we had a, a a funky upright piano, and took some piano lessons. I never really went very far with that, but there was always an encouragement. And when my brother was in bands, they always, you know, my dad would help, you know, uh, cause this is like high school, you know, 17 years old. And, you know, he'd help load up the gear and drive my brother and his friends to whatever gig they were doing somewhere. And so we, there was always encouragement for any kind of artistic endeavor. Yes. And, and sort of, cause you mentioned ceramics and pottery, were there any other particular artists or potters that you were drawn to at that stage? People, people who were particularly keen on a, t- a type of glazing or were you, had you picked up on things like that kind of Edward Hopper, you know, those amazing sort of pictures of slightly desolate you know well I was always I was always paying attention to a lot of art um I had in high school I had a great great uh art teacher who um I remember he brought in a film by Marshall McLuhan you know right. the is the is the message yes and we had art forum magazine all the time you know and you're opening up and you're looking and it's like what's this woman she's sitting here and people are cutting pieces of her clothes off. And that was Yoko Ono. Dear old you know, Yoko, indeed. Performances. Yes. And, uh, and then I had friend, an, an older friend who was a painter. And so I always was familiar with all, you know, what was kind of going on in the modern art world in ceramics there are people like Peter Volkus and John Mason yes. who were LA artists who were doing very large scale things. And then I also uh, got into people like Richard Shaw and Ron Nagel, who do very, um, Richard Shaw does what they call trompe l'oeil ceramics, where he'll have something, it'll look like a stack of cards and sticks and and a tin can, and it's all clay, it's all low fire glazes. And Ron Nagel does these beautiful, uh, precious cups. Right. Lots of lots of glazes and and colors and he's he's become fairly famous and he went he actually did some music work as well and was in a band uh, group called the Do Rocks and he actually was a co-writer of the Tubes song Don't Touch Me There. Oh, nice one! Oh, just tell me his name again so I'll make a note of that. Ron Nagel, N A G L E. You and, very- yeah, you, and if you see his stuff, it's really beautiful. He's real. He you would use a cup shape, but they were just amazing, amazing glazes. And that, you know, I started learning about other types of ceramics than just normal pottery. Yeah. Yes, you'll be impressed. Last Sunday, 
because my partner's got into pottery and stuff and she said oh I want to go to the coast this is in East Anglia because apparently there's some wild clay or yeah Ah, clay that you can sort of you know dig up dig up and uh, put in a plastic bag and take home I have to say it was quite heavy um so she's going to be working on that for uh, the next couple of weeks and months so it'll be interesting to see what she's managed to sort of can yeah so um yes the world of ceramics is um I'm slightly surrounded by now, so that's quite that's quite interesting. But did you? I mean, because of being San Francisco, and you mentioned Yoko Ono, and there was performance artists here, there, and everywhere. Did you? Were you aware of people like the Coquettes and Fayette, and you well, know, well, and, once and I got the Ligon once Theater. I got to San Francisco, I mean, I was in I was in Southern California, and then in you know just the L.A. area, Newport Beach, and that's when. Um, you know, Talking Heads, Ramones, all that was happening. That was the uh, 77, I guess, yes. 76, 77. And then I went up to San Francisco in 79 to do a master's in sculpture at the San Francisco Art Institute. And that's where all of a sudden I was learning about, you know, all this contemporary performance work. Although, actually, when I was at UC Irvine, uh, one of the teachers brought in the Kipper Kids. Do, 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 do you know about the Kipper Kids? No. They were two British guys. Uh, one of them ended up, I don't know if he still is, he married Bette Midler. <laughs> nice. Um, and they would do these outrageous performances where they would have funny makeup on and they would break eggs over their heads and throw flour on each other and... Uh, so I started learning about also this whole conceptual world of, of art and performance. And then in San Francisco, that was a really big deal. The Coquettes were, I never really, you know, saw them, but they were very well known at the time. And, um, you yes. know, that, that's, there was that whole, the, 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 the early San Francisco punk scene was starting and, and then there was this, like the Mabuhe Gardens was a Filipino restaurant that this guy, Dirk Richardson, uh, somehow talked the owner into letting him book rock shows at, at, at night. And the Mabuhe became, I mean, that's like Devo's, one of, one of the first shows Devo ever played in San Francisco was there. Yes. Mad, the specials, you know. It was a and and then there was a place called the Deaf Club that was an actual club for the deaf, and and I never went there, but a lot of bands played there because the deaf people loved the vibrations, you know. Yes, they could absolutely. Enjoy the music. So there was this real burgeoning, you know, not quite underground, but just slowly, not not too commercial yet, scene with you know. Uh, a lot of bands and and uh what I, I mean you know it just I just kept progressing through different things yeah so did you did you leave you you know like you went to you mentioned college to do art then did you leave that and sort of just get a not just get a job but just start working and then the music kind of world sort of you caught up with that again sort of during the late 70s well what happened was when I got to the art institute in 79 that first year i was there i met deborah and she was doing performance work and i had brought up my bass guitar and a little amp uh and a little boss drum machine 
from Southern California. And somehow we were talking and, and she, found, you know, it came out that I had this bass and a drum machine said, oh, why don't you play on this performance? And so she and her friend, uh, Rachel, we did a, a song called Lunch Meat, <laughs> this performance they were doing. And then she had been working with some people and knew a drummer and a, and a, and a guitarist, this guy, Jay and, and Peter. And so, oh, let's get together and we'll play. And it was just something at the time. It was just, oh, no big deal. This isn't going to really go anywhere. And 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 then it ended up taking off through a whole variety yes. of situations. But, you know? So did had the sort of the, the punk scene, because you mentioned people like Roxy Music and Talking Heads, but had the punk scene from people like, um, you also mentioned the Ramones, didn't you? But like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, had they all sort of come into your consciousness as well? As right, that yeah, all of, that. Or the yeah. CBGB's world and Max's Kansas yeah. City. Had that well, because all... there was there was a rough trade record store in in uh, San Francisco, and uh, you know, so it, it, and and radio, college radio was playing all this stuff. So, um, uh, God, I remember, yeah, just uh, you know, Buzzcocks. I mean, all the there's so you know, I, I'm terrible at remembering all the names, but all the bands I you know I knew of them, heard all of them, was buying records. And, yes. you know, XTC was a big you know they were kind of an influence on me. Gang of Four was an influence. Um, uh, Talking Heads. It it yeah the whole that whole music world I was aware of all of it. Uh, well, it's it, interesting because it I suppose in a sort of simplistic way we had that kind of. You know, I mean, there was lots of different scenes in the 70s from prog rock to heavy rock to, you know, the sort of the West Coast sound, the singer songwriter. But then, you know, punk comes along and then you get this post punk period as well, don't you? And like you just mentioned, quite a few of those bands, which are quite, you know, awkward and jarring from, you know, like people like the Gang of Four and Magazine. Yeah. Slightly jarring, yeah. you know, public image limited, yeah. but there was something kind of edgy about a lot of those bands and why yeah. were the same. But then after that, about, you know, 82, there was kind of a bit of a movement towards what I look at as kind of the indie pop world when people like the Smiths came along and it was like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. this is kind of a, a slight return to a, a, another slightly conventional way of singing. But, you know, at the same time, the lyrics were quite definite about sort of sadness and loneliness and being miserable <laughs> but, um, but we Morrissey. loved him. Morrissey during those times was I, fantastic who knows it, I just found him so so hilarious to listen to you know to be <laughs> singing about um you know you go to the club and you stand there alone and and you're alone and then you go home alone and you cry and you want to die <laughs> yes he, he he threw he put that one in space didn't he really yes i know we loved him but when you're 18 and you feel a little bit because at the same time on the other side of the coin at that period was that kind of rise of the new romantic and there was bands like Stavant, yeah. spandau Ballin, duran duran and i suppose even frankie goes to hollywood abc there was that trevor horn production sound and so right. people were like god you know and politically things got slightly slightly it was quite divisive really you got the right 
you know, with Thatcher and the yuppie, and then you got the left, which was all socialist and lots of people striking, and you know, so it was it was very, you know, which which side were you on was quite, you know, it was quite obvious, I suppose, during that time. So obviously, you know, Morrissey sung to me anyway, and lots of people like. Well, then also you had like in England, especially you had the the skinheads and bands that were associated with that and then some of the bands didn't really want to be associated with skinheads per se with you know sort of that neo-nazi element and yes uh you know it was i I mean i just was aware there was all this stuff going on in orange county california with bands like fear and uh what was interesting was in the 70s if I wanted to go to a, sh- a rock show, I had to go to the San Diego Sports Arena or right. the San Diego Convention Center. And, you know, I could see Vanilla Fudge or, you know, uh, Jethro Toe opening up for this band called Led Zeppelin, you know, and it, we had to go to a giant arena. And that's where I saw the Stones and 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 people I knew who were playing in bands they played in bars doing three, four sets a night, and you could only basically do cover tunes. And so there really wasn't any interest on my part, like, oh, yeah, I need to be in a band. Uh, But then once in San Francisco, that scene, the punk element really changed where all of a sudden people are like, oh, well, let's do a show here. Let's play this club. Let's play this place. And it opened it up for people doing their own material again. And that, to me, was the really big change uh, in the music world at that time. I mean, if you, you know, I was be listening, you know, listening to David Bowie. But if you want to see David Bowie, you've got to go to a huge arena. Whereas if, you know, in San Francisco, when the specials were coming through. You could go to a small club and see them, or, you know, you could see the Ramones at the small club and, and you could think about being able to play in a place like that if you had a band. So that was, that was a huge, huge change. I thought. Yeah. Yeah, And in this country, the UK, I mean, we had a few, I suppose we had gatekeepers at that point. You know, we had this DJ called John Peel who, you know, he played, I think he was about three or four, nights evenings a week just for a few hours on bbc on radio one but again you know it was kind he had him even though individually you all felt very isolated and you were the only one who were going to be very excited about the work of i don't know bog shed or stump or a witness even even the smiths and there was also you know his love of people like sly and robbie and the bundu boys and all these kind of things but he would always pick sort of the song which was you know i think he always chose the best reggae song the best african song the best indie song the best yeah you know he seemed to be able to go through all those different types of music and say i think i've found you the best one this week and here you go and you'd be wow this is brilliant so we had him you know, you know, curating these shows. And then we had the three, you know, weekly music papers like the NME, Melody Making Sounds. Yeah. And again, you know, for for them, they needed content. So it helped, you know, a lot of bands get that exposure. And also the UK is tiny, isn't it? Let's face it. And every little yeah. city and town has an alternative indie night and you could just get a transit van and go whizzing around the country and pretend you've been on a tour of 10 nights. But, you know, really, it was just, uh, yeah. But, it, it, you know, when you're... You, when you're 18 or 20 it's it's kind of uh, important to feel like you're progressing somewhat you know so um that's important well i remember you know john peel was was definitely known as an incredibly important factor 
in especially in in the British music world, and and mm-hmm. that always had an effect in America. And then, like you said, enemy sounds and melody maker were. Uh, I used to buy those all the time. You know, when, when I was in San Francisco, and you just go through all that, and it was always amazing how a band in England could just be starting. And then all of a sudden they're in these three, I guess, well, I always thought of them as papers, but I guess. Yes, they were papers. Yeah. And, and, you know, and all of a sudden you're getting all this attention. And so you could, you could jump up in status really fast in, in the UK, it seemed like because of, of the competition of these people all wanting to write about the next big thing. And, and then of course they were, they all loved tearing someone down eventually too you know that that's was always we, sort of that's fun. what we do in the uk we just build them up and well they do it in the us too yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes it's all it's all quite good but then you know when your your band was forming this was like 79 wasn't it i mean this was a yeah. period in in the uk you know thatcher got in the you know conservative government which then is in for decades and then we have you know the falkland war then we have the the miners strike there's lots of strikes there's also green and common with the anglian ang anti-nuclear kind of campaign going on so we thought we were all going to die so what what was it like for you in san francisco was it you know because it was very political and angsty in this country at the time so i just wondered if you were sort of having a similar or quite a different experience well when i first came to san francisco it was i think the first year i was there there was the uh, um the people's temple uh uh deaths uh with um uh, jim what was his name jim god i'm drawing a blank but you know where they had uh all the people had been forced to commit suicide in guiana and it was part of the people's temple uh, uh church in san francisco so that was a huge thing going on and then our mayor was shot uh and uh you know the uh uh, white i can't think of his first name but um uh, and, I, yeah. and i'm drawing blocks on both the mayor and and the first <laughs> gay councilman who was so famous so the, and then there were riots because um uh white was was acquitted because of the twinkie defense i mean all this stuff was there was i was working at nights as a janitor while going to school and i remember bringing all the trash outside and there was sirens and smoke and all this stuff going on because it was real close to uh, the um, uh, city hall, and that's where there was riots going on over the uh, the the um, God, I can't think of his first name, but the white acquittal, and right. uh, that's uh, there's a, um, a Dead Kennedys album that has a picture of all the police cars on fire. Um, so it was, there was a lot going on the first couple of years that I was there and there was a lot of political stuff happening and, um, it, you know, it it didn't overtake everything, but it was definitely part of things and bands like the clash, uh, were playing in, in, in San Francisco and, and, you know, there was a, and, and even a band like the specials was bringing, Sort of political viewpoints uh, to the to America as well. So it was, 
Uh, I would imagine, yes, I would imagine <laughs> Ghost Town would have um, resonated quite a bit, really. So um, interesting. So, so then, as 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 we were starting to break into the new decade with great enthusiasm and optimism. So, where, how did the band then sort of come together as a sort of solid unit? Well, we started doing, you know, some like just getting together and playing. And then a friend of Deborah's, who was a dancer, uh, was putting on dance performance in her loft. And she wanted a band to play af afterwards. And Deborah volunteered. And that's when we had to come up with a name. And I don't know if you've heard the story of how we came up with the name. Um, no, the uh, name. How did okay. the name happen? Well, so, so there was. Um, Deborah, uh, Peter, the guitar player, and myself and Deborah were in her apartment, and she was making two columns of words from uh, an Ananis Nin book, the the writer, and yes. and then on the counter was this San Francisco magazine that had a picture of uh, a, a a beautiful woman sitting at a bar and two really handsome guys totally ignoring her and paying attention to each other. And the headline was why a woman can't get laid in San Francisco. <laughs> and it was right at a time when this was, you know, the gay scene was really breaking open in San Francisco. I mean, really huge. And the Castro, uh, Folsom street, these were all areas that were really, you know, well-known, gay hangout places and deborah even you know a lot of her friends were gay guys that she thought you know she was interested in would be gay and she'd still be good friends with them and so somehow we had romeo in one column and void in the other and we went oh how about romeo void you know it kind of describes what's going on in san francisco you know there's no yes. there's no romeos for the girls you know they're all <laughs> it's Romeo and and whoever the other guy was that he was fighting <laughs> with. Um, Ken. And and so that became we did, and we'd like, oh yeah, so what? No, it's not we're never, you know, we're not gonna go anywhere. Who cares, you know? And there was this scene at the Mabuhe at the Fab Mab club where they always had three bands playing. And a lot of the bands like The Offs and Crime and uh, Chrome and some other bands, they they got to the point where they felt like I'm headlining, you know, I'm not, Offs are not going to open for Crime. Crime's not going to open for Offs. We're too good. We're going to only headline. And so they had to help find people to open. And Deborah knew a lot of these people. And so we opened for The Offs a bunch of times. And we never even talked to Dirk Dirksen, the guy who booked. We just were brought in and we never had to submit a tape or anything. And so we were we played a series of shows at the Mav, and that's what this live album, you know, comes yes, from. Yes, this is and it. and that's when Howie Klein, who ran 415 Records, which was a San Francisco uh, independent label, he saw us a few times. He brought in this guy, David Kahn. Who had, who was a, a budding engineer, and he was working at a recording studio called the Automat as their, um, their the guy running the front desk, and he would get free time in the evenings, uh, 
And so how we brought David to hear us, David didn't really think much of us at first, but we did this song called I Mean It, um, and he really liked that. So he said, okay, I'll, I'll work with him. And we ended up doing an album, and then the album ended up taking off because Howie had a huge uh, reputation and network with college radio in the United States. Yes. And so when he started sending this record out, college radio started playing us. And our a song called Talk Dirty to Me, which is on the first album, got picked up by uh, uh, KROQ in L.A., you know, Rodney Binghamheimer. And, oh, um, Rodney. Is he the equivalent of John yeah. Peel, by the way? In a way, yeah, yeah. Because he was, I mean, he was bringing in all the British acts and totally famous for that. But so we, all of a sudden we were getting played on LA radio and we were able to do touring and, you know, it, <laughs> I mean, it goes on. And, but all of a sudden we were like, oh, we're a real band and we're actually doing something, you know. Yes, so, this is this is true. So one uh, 415 Records was your sort of the stepping stone in a way wasn't it for your next moment so the first album on that label is it's a condition isn't it yes yes and the record yeah. that is going to be released is the live album which is kind of almost in the first year of your existence which which is um in the 11 right track. that's even be it's even before 415 records and um there was um the story is that there was a a, a person and I forget his name who was recording a lot of live shows at the clubs and they would get played on uh the Berkeley College radio uh, um God, I'm drawing a blank there uh and and KUSF in in San Francisco and uh, uh uh and so he had this huge collection of live tapes which I had never really heard, but he saw, ended up selling it to um, this the label we're on, which is uh, Liberty Liberty Hall, I think. Is that the name of it? <laughs> I haven't paid a lot of Liberation, um, Liberation so bought, Hall. Yes, that's the one. Liberation Hall. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, right. Arnie. We can cope. Uh, and um, oh, so, so he sold the tapes. So and he, then was Arnie, a, he was he was an he was an archivist before we even thought yeah. of such things, didn't we? So he just yeah. literally recorded everybody from the sound. Was that from the soundboard that he recorded all these? Yeah, from the soundboard. And and there is there is a bit of a um I don't know if he had a mic or something. There is a bit of a room sound to it. So uh you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to to listen to the record, but it actually is pretty decent recording for a live record and at that time you know and yeah uh, well no it does sound good you know it's surprising but it was also surprising that it is within the first 12 months of your you know career in, in yeah and so yeah um, we i'm surprised at how tight we actually were <laughs> yeah you know i guess we did rehearse a lot you know we we paid attention to you know and um so it's but you you got so good that's how I was going to say, you got a good sound, didn't you, straight away? I mean, obviously, there's a, a huge, you know, there's a kind of a, a purity and there's a sort of obviously a big kind of, you know, a shout out to Patti Smith, really. But there's also ben, Ben's kind of saxophone playing, which is just kind of yeah. an absolutely exquisite little kind of added sonic soundscape over everything else with, you know, the, the vocals. His, his, his touch added so much to the band. Um 
see, I was listening, you know, I mean, you can hear elements of Talking Heads, XTC, Gang of Four, uh, Blues, uh, you know, in terms of the bass stuff, you can hear all those influences. Peter, the guitar player, was was a big Beatles fan. So he's playing, at this time especially, fairly clean. Uh, you know, it's not a real distorted sound. Uh, the drummer was a big fan of of uh, Keith Moon. <laughs> yeah. And so he had his thing. And then De Deborah is influenced by Patti Smith and just her own poetry. And then Benjamin is not a he's not like an r&b sax player you know it's not like that 50s 60s r&b sax he's he's a, a miles davis fan and a coltrane fan and so he's bringing in this whole other element because there were bands at that time that they all everyone in the band liked the same bands and yeah. so they would end up sounding like their influences Whereas we had all these different influences and it became this gumbo that, you know, you couldn't say, oh, these guys listen to Talking Heads or these guys listen to Gang of Four or, you know, or this is a Beatles song or, you know, this sounds like a jazz tune. It was just this weird conglomeration. And uh, yeah, it, that was one thing... I was going to say, a few years later, I think there was an Australian band called Morphine, but I don't think they ever had vocals, but they used to have a sort of quite a... a oh, no, they a, had vocals. Yeah. Okay. I can't remember. Mor well, Morphine, I thought they were American. They um, might be. I might be. The Morphine, I'm thinking, they had a drummer, saxophone, and the bass player played a... Um, I think it was only like a two or three string bass. Yeah, I think and he used slide, and he unfortunately he died of some like heart on, condition or something very young on stage. Was it on stage? Yeah, it was on stage. But they yeah. were, yeah. That I I didn't find out about them till much later. But yeah, uh, and and but in the eighties, I do remember we were getting very pretentious as well. Apart from being miserable, and I remember a lot of art house kind of films that we loved, like Betty Blue and. Diva and all the work of David Lynch, which is I'm watching all now. But there was also people like is it John Lowry who was into those um that New York kind of scene as well, which was all very sleazy and um Oh yeah. John Lurie, yeah. Lurie, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. yeah. And and yeah, James well Chung. there was this whole New York scene, yeah. James Charles. The the, that's the one. And so. um uh, James White and the Blacks. James um, White and the Blacks. Oh, I'm doing well here. <laughs> oh, this so is like you know, there was the, yes. what was interesting. There was a there was sort of a funk thing going on uh, in the New York scene, and which I was aware. Of, you know, uh, you know, Parliament Funkadelic, and you know, all that. Totally aware of all that, and and uh, listening to that as well. But then you know you have like. Uh, material with um as bill laswell bill laswell and 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 uh and uh what's it there's a song so hungry so angry that's uh, oh that's mood six or medium oh they were medium cool no, yeah it was medium. medium medium i think yeah that's it medium medium i know oh. but there was a bunch of people using funk rhythms yeah and and that sort of that into some of Romeo Void stuff too, and that's kind of there in um, in Never Say Never in a 
weird way. <laughs> yeah. Well, know, there was that uh, record label in New York, wasn't it? Z Records, which was obviously had all those kind of cool and and I think was it um, Brian Eno did a help collaborate or put together a compilation of stuff in the late no New York that's the one so um yeah, yeah. No again when you're yeah. in the UK and you're looking at you know scenes and you're desperate to be cool like I was you know you, you sort of you <laughs> grab anything don't you which is kind of it look, makes you even more interesting than you possibly are or definitely well, the, all that stuff I found I thought all that was really great what was a drag to me and did affect Romeo Void was when all the synth bands started happening and you had the Madonnas and the, um, oh God, uh, God, the guys with all the, the weird hair, you know. the Well, there was people <laughs> like um, the Pesh Flock Boat, of Seagulls. The Flock of Seagulls, we all remember them. with Well, they were all named Thompson TV, Twins. Oh God, yes, that's right. So uh, it was all. Rather... And so that started screwing up the whole thing. That people, you know, they, the 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 general culture wanted this, you know, MTV look thing, and we still had our fans. But the record company, by this point, you know, by that point, we were signed on uh, uh, CBS Columbia, yes. and they, you know, they were like, oh well, Deborah doesn't really fit the, you know, the she doesn't look like Madonna. She doesn't look like. Um, uh, well, I suppose know, she didn't. Look, the, bang, the Bangles was um, the the big one, weren't they? Of that period, I think. Well, that was... was a little bit later. That was well. We were still, yeah, we were still around, and that was David Kahn again. And you know, he um, he was he really got into trying to have pop hits. Yeah, and um, yes. but yeah. Uh, oh, and what's her name? Girls just want to have fun. Cindy Lauper, we loved Cindy her. Lauper. I mean, nothing wrong with her. I think you know, but but there was this thing that was happening with kind of catchy poppy tunes and a good-looking girl, and and we didn't really quite fit into that mold, and and so we we maintained a certain um, fan base, but the record company sort of was like, oh, we're not going to push these guys too much. Yeah. I guess I guess in the UK you'd have been you know you'd have been very much at home on Rough Trade Records you know on in the indie yeah. charts wouldn't you you know alongside everything. Well, what's but funny is we played we in '85 we did a tour of Europe and oh. we played um, in London at um, is it the Marquee Club the yes. famous with the Who poster and um, and I think it was the reviewer in NME. <laughs> <laughs> we're like a couple days later like, oh look there's a review and it's like yeah the guitar player is just a wanker he's just wanking yeah <laughs> so there was not a we did not get a favorable review in in uh in england and that was the only show we played in england oh yeah. that's shocking oh my god the only time they but germany be- they loved us in germany and france we got really great response in germany france italy norway uh sweden uh switzerland yeah yeah it was so when you came to record the second album obviously on a on a major label was there a bit more pressure on the band to deliver something a bit more bigger and more you know bombastic well what happened was we we were still on 415 
and we uh, we actually did the Never Say Never EP that came after It's a Condition, and we were touring uh, our first tour of the East Coast, and um, our uh, drummer. We were at an interview uh, at a Boston radio station. And he was upset about something and he kicked these bottles going down the stairs and they had a photographic stop bath in them and they splashed up in his eyes and he he ended up fine. But for for a, a week or so, he was kind of blinded and had to be bandaged up and go to the hospital. And so we couldn't play our show. Mm. And Rick Okazic of the cars called us. And he had heard our first record on tape. Uh, one of the roadies on the bus had been playing it. And he said, well, come check out Synchro Sound, my studio in Boston. You know, the next day, come hang out and I'll show you the studio. And and he said, next time you're, you're in town, I'll give you some recording time. So we all, you know, we all end up going home and... Um, the drummer recovers and then we're on another tour. And before that tour, I just kept calling <laughs> synchro sound and bugging Rick and, and, you know, cause they're always like, you know, synchro sound. Uh, yeah. This is, you know, Frank from Romeo void calling for Rick. And, and, you know, the, the, the secretaries are like, Oh, this is just some fan or something. They don't know. And, yes. but I finally managed to connect up with them and we arranged for a specific time. And so we were finishing up the tour and we were going to do a final show on a Saturday night, but we started recording on a Thursday and the cars had just finished their album with uh, Roy Thomas Baker and the right. engineer was Ian Taylor and Ian Taylor had produced the first uh, psychedelic furs record. And we loved his engineering quality, you know, sound. And so he engineered and we did these three songs and then we had to do this show on a Saturday night and we played the spit, which was a, a you know, the place to play if you were a, a an, an indie band. And yes. we did, we did an encore and then we did another encore and then we, people wanted more. And we had been jamming on this tune throughout the tour at, at sound checks and so Deborah came out, put all these lyrics out on the floor, and we started jamming on this song. And we did it, and then it's over. And Ian comes up afterwards and says, "Why didn't? What was that? Why didn't we record it?" He said, "Oh, it's not done yet." He called up Rick, and uh, plug in. He called up Rick and said, "Oh, we need to go back in the studio tomorrow." So on Sunday, we went back in the studio and recorded this song and they did a little bit of editing and Ian took it down to the Ritz in New York on two track tape and played it to listen to um, uh, over the big speakers because the Ritz was a big dance rock club and it came out as Never Say Never and that and it was a four song EP and Howie you know, was, came out on 415 Records and that was really our big break with kind of the the industry in a way. Yes. And, it's got, it's had, and because it's of that, CBS wanted us. And then we did our second actual album. 
Right. Uh, and leader, you know. Things that think bene benefactor is is the one, isn't benefactor. it? Really? Yes, and that has um, a bonus track, Never Say Never, on it. Yeah. Oh, no, it's also your opening track as well. Yeah. So by then, because we've been doing this show for quite a long time, I mean, most bands have this fantastic five-year narrative, don't they? They get together, you know, they, they have the 12-month honeymoon in this country, you know, they get a play on John Peel, they get a John Peel session, things going really well. And then, you know, the first album, second album, third album often a bit you know kind of a bit difficult what was it like for you then sort of doing because obviously the intensity of the band is quite here isn't it really because you do kind of three albums really close so there's there's a sort of uh there's not really any time to breathe is there between benefactor and instincts at this straight stage there was well a little bit but not a whole lot yeah we were you know we definitely had to get another record done and uh we went with benefactors with with never say never EP. Rick, a Catholic, is the uh, you know official producer, but it was really Ian Taylor who yes. who made helped create the sound. And then we hired Ian to produce Benefactor. And the only problem with Benefactor for me is it it has that kind of classic '80s snare sound, that sort of gated snare on a lot of songs and i find that when i listen back it's a little you know tiring but yeah. uh, i think the songs still hold up uh and later versions we've done of those songs i really like when we were playing them live and then instincts we brought david Kahn back because he was with cbs we were on cbs at that point and he was someone who was familiar with us and uh we felt we could work with him uh, but he also was really geared towards trying to have a hit. And so Girl in Trouble got a lot of work, and he really spent a lot of time on that. Um, and it went way past what my initial – I initially was was thinking of as sort of a um, Parliament Funkadelic kind of song, yes. <laughs> you know, with a sort of certain kind of funky bass line. And, um it just became much more poppy, which is, you know, fine. It got us on American bandstands. So, yeah. yeah. And what was the atmosphere like with the band? Because obviously you're now in this kind of marriage with each other, um, you know, which is often... Well, by that point, we weren't all getting along very well. Right. Know? And so there was a lot of tension, a certain amount of... Um, oh, yeah, you go work on your vocals, Deborah. I'm not going to be there. Or, you know, I mean, it was kind of back and forth. And and um, uh, it's, you know, I always tell people, it's like when you're first getting together, you get together, you rehearse, you play shows, but you always go home to your own place. And then all of a sudden you're touring and you're living with each other. <laughs> and that becomes, you know, that becomes its own thing, you know, that, uh, I mean, I see bands having problems that I'll read, and I just think what we needed and what they need is you need a marriage counselor, basically. I, I, I was going to yeah. say there was some um, because a lot of people say, Oh, what we, I mean, there's two things, aren't there? Most people say, Oh, we needed a break and we just needed to go away for a year and then come back. And I'm never sure if that would happen if it if you would ever come back and you also vaguely miss the moment that the band is kind of happening really that zeitgeist moment i mean perhaps it would work i don't know 
you'd have to have a bit of maturity. But then I remember when the police reformed and, you know, obviously it was worth millions to everybody. So a yeah, lot of people were like, yeah. oh, please, please get on. And obviously everyone was having a great time apart from two of the three members, which is not good, you know, was the, you know, Stuart and, and Sting. And um, mm. so they had banned therapy. And I think they managed to sort of realise where some of the issues were when they got spoken about and, and were able to then say, let's finish the tour not kill each other we were going to have a lot of money so let's just vaguely think about that at the same time let's not blow it and yeah. and i suppose did you feel like you could have done with band therapy at this stage oh definitely definitely i think if we would have had a good therapist that could have talked to us and we would have been able to talk to each other about what we were up to going on what was going on i think that would have helped tremendously the other problem was when you have someone like the police there's a financial um uh, impetus to stay together and do a <laughs> tour and Romeo Void was not making those kind of dollars you know right uh, we when we would I remember we did a really big U.S. tour in 80, 84 and we were flying at times to get to places because the booking agents were booking us like you know uh in two different you know places real very far away and and so we'd have to fly. And we got back from this tour where we thought we were making a lot of money. And our accountants, we had a meeting and the accountant was like, well, basically, there's really no money to distribute. <laughs> you guys spent it all on on touring. And, you know, we started looking at that whole thing of like the manager gets this, the booking agents get this, the road crew gets this, the the travel costs and the hotels are this. And then there's five of us left to divide up what's left. Yes. And, you know, it was like the booking agents and the were making more than we were individually. And the booking agents, you know, they don't they don't care where they're booking you to. You know, it's like, oh, you're playing in Chicago, this and then you're playing in Atlanta, you know, two days later. It's like, uh, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> actually that was the that was an earlier tour in 84 and then we did another tour where we said you have to book this tour in a way that we can actually end up with a little bit of money when we come back we have to really do it more cost effectively <laughs> yeah. yes i know there's that i think when you're young you think there's artistic integrity forget the finance and then when you get a bit old you think perhaps perhaps let's have a look at let's have a look at a few of those financial yeah. kind of yeah. accounts it could be useful but then so when you went to record instincts in in sort of 84 did you feel like that was the end of the band was there a sense that yeah this this is we're gonna we've got this project we're gonna have to do it but i can't see it no no I, at the time i think we were really we we really were excited because we had a new drummer uh Aaron Smith and he was able to play in ways that Larry Carter couldn't um and so it it we felt like oh this is another yet another step and I was you know the guitar player and I were pretty excited because we used to get together and work on writing tunes you know writing songs yes. and then we would get stuff to Deborah and she would put lyrics to it and then there were even a, a, a there was a, a song on there that I did the lyrics and everything to. Um, the song Instincts was uh, a, a demo that I had done with yes. a little Kaz 
keyboard. And so we were really excited to like get some of this stuff done. And um, it, the recording process was a little more uh, scattered in some ways, because we, we recorded in a variety of different places. Uh, But we were actually pretty excited about it and felt like, you know, we had a pretty good record and we were, you know, into touring for it. And um, but then again, you know, all of a sudden you're back out on the road living with each other. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it wasn't we we didn't feel at the time that, oh, this is the end. This is going to be our last thing. It was um, we really felt that, you know, we were going to continue after you know so was it the case that you all kind of sat down and and you know to quote Jim Morrison think this is the end or did you just stop turning up to rehearsals no what happened was we were touring um and we were we had done the video for girl in trouble and the say no video and we were in um detroit or cleveland it was i think it was cleveland and um, as a side note, there was this new young band that uh, opened for us. And we thought, oh, these guys are interesting. And I wonder if they'll be around very long. And uh, it was the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> right. <laughs> and those guys are still around. They've managed to survive. Uh, but we all of a sudden was here. We were hearing from people our manager that cbs was no longer going to help promote the record because they felt seeing deborah in the video that oh we can't really push her in the same way we could push you know a madonna or something and um so we were kind of annoyed about that and then shortly before the tour had started uh, deborah would know better in terms of the timing but at some point she got her own manager she wasn't happy with our manager. And so she got her own manager. And I remember there was a meeting at either Cleveland or Detroit in backstage after a show where um, she announced that she had a new manager and she was going to leave the band and go solo. And he was encouraging her to do that. And so when we did, we finished the tour and then we were being offered a tour of Europe, and we had all sort of agreed, okay, we won't say anything. <laughs> we're not going to say anything about the band eventually breaking up because yes. we really want to do this European tour. And But at the, the very last show we played, uh, Rock Pelost in uh, Germany, that we knew that was the last show we were going to do. Uh, and that Deborah was going solo after that. And um, and so we all went our separate ways at that point. Blimey, that was the end. God, that's always tricky, so that isn't was... it? Yes. And then years later, in the 90s, we got back together because our sound man, Louis Beeson, who was a, really like the, the sixth member of the band because he was utilize he was doing all the echoes and special effects that were needed for <clears throat> Benjamin's saxophone and Devorah's vocals and he uh had AIDS and was dying and we did a we got back together to do a uh, two shows in San Francisco to raise, help raise funds for him 
And at that point, Benjamin, the saxophone player, wasn't playing saxophone anymore because his hearing was was being affected by it and he had stopped playing. So right. we had another saxophone player sit in. But we did we we did sort of reunite a few different times. And um, you know, it's uh but the end was very like, okay, that's the end of that show in Germany, Hamburg, I think it was, and like, all right, see you guys later. And everyone, <laughs> you know, flew home sort of separately. And I think Benjamin and I stayed in Paris and 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 London for a an extra week. Yes. Because uh, when because when bought her solo album out a few years later, that had a couple of members from the band. Did did that feel a little bit like Yes, strange. It was a little. It was a little odd. I mean, I you know, Aaron. Aaron never really. I mean, he was sort of mercenary about the whole project anyway. You know, he. I think he always felt like he really belonged more in this other band that he was in called the Seventy Sevens. Yeah, and uh, I think he was happy to play with us, but it wasn't like he wasn't that in, you know emotionally invested in the band. Um, and Ben, you know, he was always really good friends with Deborah and I totally understood him, you know, playing on, on her solo record that, you know, didn't bother me. And he played on some stuff with, that I was working on in my, my home studio. I had, uh, was working with another vocalist trying to get another deal, which never happened. But um, and Peter was was working with me on that stuff, too. So um, yes. there wasn't really any animosity in that sense. I didn't really feel like, oh, you guys shouldn't be playing with her. You know, yeah. Was, I mean, over the decades, you know, has, 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 the, you know, has the legacy of the band, is that something that's quite important to you now? Sort of feeling like you want to have it nicely archived and have a little bit more, I don't know, respect or critically acclaimed for what you did back then? Well, I mean, I in some ways I feel like that. In other ways, because of the internet, there is so much like weird. I mean, they talk about like, oh, the band got together on Valentine's Day. And it's like, no, that's, you know, there's just all this stuff gets written. And I just don't have the, <laughs> the time or energy to go sit on Wikipedia and, you know, fix it all. And, and uh, you know, it's. It, and in some ways, I had really completely moved on from the band uh, emotionally in my life. And then with this live album being put out, it really has kind of revived uh, yes. Deborah and Peter and I communicating again. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, Benjamin passed away last year. Yes. Um, so... Uh, so in some ways, you know, and then writing uh, on on the Romeo Void website that I do, uh, there's um, uh, tributes written by Deborah and and myself, and um, so I feel like there it's it's kind of nice more because of Ben that the band gets sort of recognized again because he was such an amazing musician he was so great and he was such a um a critical part of the band in terms of the sound and making yeah. us 
a little bit different because you know people oh yeah the motels martha and the muffins romeo void well they all are bands that had saxophone players but neither of those other bands had saxophone players that sounded like benjamin or were anywhere near as uh to me interesting sax you know players they were yes. fine musicians but he had such a a quality and um so I, I mean, I do. I, I, part of me thinks about the legacy, and part of me realizes, you know, the world goes on, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, there's always going to be the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, David Bowie, um, you know, certain bands are always going to be known, but there's tons of bands that sort of fade off over time, and. People, you know, some people know them and some people don't. And we're not going to ever be one of those bands that, you know, like I said, like even like David Bowie, you know, David Bowie was was humongous and had such huge influence on the music world. And uh, along with, you know, the Beatles and the Stones. And but I kind of look at it as like, oh, yeah, kind of like you know, maybe like muddy waters or something, you know, people that know, know, and, but not everyone knows who muddy waters was. Yeah. No, <laughs> or no. Elmore James, more like Elmore James. Yeah. But I think, well, I think what's been quite interesting though, with, with say the eighties, it's like any decade, it's like the sixties, you know, it had such a good run for such a long time. And the seventies were like, Oh no, that was all terrible. And then people go, no, the seventies <laughs> was pretty amazing. Really. It's like, Oh yeah, it was. Oh, actually the sixties weren't that great either. There were some, you know, Woodstock was a disaster, but there was a great film. There was the Manson. There was kind of women had a pretty hard time. A lot of the time with, you know, quite a lot of unpleasant men who, you know, had a good PR and sort of looked great, but actually they weren't the nicest men in the world and took advantage of some situations which would probably put them in prison now. And then the 80s, <laughs> it's like now you're thinking, actually the 80s is good. But then, it, you know, the, the first story of the 80s is very simplistic. And then you dig down a bit with different layers and you think, oh, there was this part of the 80s. Because I know in the UK, we can suddenly go, oh, the 80s was, you know, new romantics. It was Duran Duran. It was Live Aid. It was you know, Frankie goes to Hollywood, it was Madonna, you know, hair metal. And I'm going, no, it was the Smiths. It was about being awkward and shy and a bit hopeless. And, yeah. and then there was this scene and there's, and you know, there's been a sort of compilation of the goth scene, the Batcave, you know, with all these goth bands. And then there was Psychobilly and there was a narco-punk and there was, you know, there were so many tribes in, in that period that it's nice to hear different different kind of narratives to that each decade because I, I sort of still feel that, it, you know, with the teen scene, you know, you, you kind of get a five-year narrative, you know, that's where a, a new wave comes along between, you know, 16 to 18-year-olds and they want their band and after that period, they're going to have to get jobs or move on or leave home. Yeah, and yeah. so then the next wave of 16 year olds come along, they want their kind of, they want to discover that band for the first time and that get the first single and see them in a small club and create their kind of story that music was great in their days <laughs> and it's rubbish now, but as we do. Um, and I, so, you know, you've got that kind of narrative, haven't you? The, the eighties up to 85, 86 is, you know, where you yeah. are, but it's great that, you know, it's like, Oh, actually, you know, you've got this live album and now people are listening to 
the sound, they hear the saxophone, they hear the vocals. You know, obviously you can think that's a bit Patti Smith, but actually they're good songs. You know, it's they're fantastic. You know, I, I you know, and I did sort of see that you you do get a lot of monthly listens and have over seven seven and a half million plays of your single so or the main song so it's you know people it's great that people are discovering it that's what i'm trying to say in a bad way yeah yeah well the 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 music world the industry has changed so much you know the 80s and even the 90s um the record labels still really ruled things and now with the internet it's <laughs> You know, what's Spotify doing? Who's on YouTube? Who's, you know, what's on TikTok? You, you know, I read about how, you know, the, the, the series Stranger Things, you know, they, which I watched, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but then yes. they used Kate Bush uh, uh, running up the hill. Yeah. And all of a sudden Kate Bush is being discovered and played and downloaded and, and, um, you know, and, and radio commercial radio is is i i don't even listen to it anymore you know i mean for years and years all i've listened to is college radio or npr stations you know and um but you know growing up as a teenager you you pushed the buttons on the car radio and you heard everything that was popular and yes. now you know it's so totally it's all these little divisions and someone like taylor swift is huge but i'm not you know you still don't even hear her on the radio necessarily you know um yes. and and so the world of music has you know it's it's become this internet thing where like you said the 16 year olds all of a sudden they they found billy eilish on youtube or you know wherever it was tiktok or whatever yes and then all of a sudden bill eilish becomes huge you know and um i mean taylor swift did do kind of the traditional came up through the country world and you know was was doing cds and stuff but billy eilish she she totally came up out of the internet you know from things that i'd read and yes. um i know it's a whole and, it's a and whole, so whole mystery the, to us, the kids it? The kid decide this is who I want to follow. This is who I'm a fan of, and uh, the record labels are sort of they just have to play catch up, you know. Like oh, okay, <laughs> we'll we'll see if we can sign this person and you know and put out their product. And but know. you know I'll, I'll make CDs for people sometimes of my own music, and like oh I don't have a CD player. <laughs> it's like oh okay. So I have to put it on a on a thumb drive and give it to them so they can put it in their oh, computer. God, yeah. you know? An MP3. And, oh, no, and it's, it's that's one. you know I I got some copies of this you know this live record, um, uh, and I could only give a couple copies to friends because hardly anybody even has a turntable anymore. Oh, no. you know? We like the idea. I still have two turntables and cassette decks and and CD players and you know, and digital stuff, but, uh, I know, but cassette, you know, that... cassettes are bad for our nervous system, aren't they? Because we just kind of, we just can feel or they just imagine the ch tape is going to get chewed up and you're going to watch know. it. So it's, it, it causes a lot of, it's far too much anxiety with a cassette, I'm afraid. 
you know, I've got all well, these John, I've got all these John that, Peel shows on cassette, you know, cassette, and oh, I, yeah, I dread yeah. playing them because it's like, oh my god, I couldn't hear that. And you pull it out, and it's like, oh dear, that's not. Good. Well, what you have to do, which I have all these live shows that are sound man recorded of the band on tour, and they're sitting in a box, and someday I have to just sit down and start running them once, you know, clean the heads on the on the cassette deck run the tape and be you know digitizing it run it into the computer uh, and then put it away and uh yes yeah that's what you kind of have to do is you know just this is true so look just just a sort of an an idea because it's always kind of interesting you know you you've you know obviously fantastic kind of music kind of career but i noticed your website you've got a lot of ceramics and pottery so what then happens to you I mean, you, you obviously you've still made a lot of music, but did you have to diversify and do other things at this stage? Well, at a certain point, um, yeah. Once the you know, because we weren't, we it's not like we had a whole bunch of money, you know, when we when we broke up. Um, and I had always during the time I was in San Francisco, I'd always worked as a carpenter with contractors, and then and learned a lot, and so I started doing remodeling work on people's homes and fences right. and decks and, and, uh, you know, sheetrocking And, and then I eventually became a contractor. So for almost 30 years, that's what I did to make a living was I was, um, I was a contractor and pretty much all geared towards remodeling, did a few things where I actually built something from scratch, but I didn't do a lot. It wasn't like I wasn't building houses. Uh, but that, I had a great career doing that and um, and still was always doing music and playing with people and had a couple different bands going and, um, you know, nothing ever really took off. But you just sort of go, OK, the you know, the world is different. You know, in the 90s, when bands like Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, and uh, that whole scene was happening, I was a little bit... Um, uh just like oh man if Romeo Void would have just made it together stayed yes. together through into the 90s it was people were back to a band with like drums bass and guitar you know and and not synthesizers and people dancing and, you know and uh so I felt like we we would have continued to fit if we had stayed together at that time yes. uh, but you know, I made my living as a contractor and met lots of wonderful people, had great clients. And um, yeah, if you listen on my website, there's I've been writing a lot of songs again. I, I have a lot of um, instrumental work, but there's, yes, I know you've there's a couple of new tunes there. Um, Sorrow Knows How to Swim and uh, uh, Hot, Hot Tubbin' with Jesus. <laughs> yes. uh, telling Me Goodbye. Um, so it it's uh yeah i i'm still i've been doing instrumental work for a long time and have had things in uh like videos and uh have a friend who is a a, a dancer a choreographer and did a lot of stuff uh in the early 2000s for her dance performances uh, did a lot of music for that. So I, you know, I've, I've always kept my hand in it and, um, 
the nice thing is there's still money comes in from the Romeo Void catalog because we own our own publishing. That was one of the best things that ever happened. Howie Klein was not aware that as a record label, you could ask to own the publishing. You know, the songwriters still get their songwriting. So he put us in touch with uh, two guys who ran a company called Bug Music in Los Angeles. And they were administering people's publishing for 10%. And they had the Blasters and Los Lobos and I think X. And so he put us in touch with them and they came up to San Francisco and we signed a deal with them. And so it's now owned by BMG, Bertelman, something, you know, yes, worldwide. But we still we still get our 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 all our publishing and songwriting royalties. So there's a decent amount of money that comes in every year from that, which is nice. And so that helps, you know, helps buy more equipment or whatever, you know. Yeah, well, that's great because there's not many people have that kind of a moment. They always think, yeah, I never saw any money. So that's that's one of the happy stories I've heard, which is all good. Yeah. So with, with your who was the dancer you worked with, did you, did you say, on, on sort of. Oh, Janice Garrett. Uh, it's. Garrett, she's now G-A-R-R-E-T-T slash Moulton, M-O-U-L-T-O-N, Garrett Moulton Dance Company. Uh, And they're they're in San Francisco, Oakland. And And with all your... Sorry, after you. I was just going to say, um, and with your pottery and your Raku firing, is this kind of another little kind of sideline and, and sort of passion you've got yeah i mean that's like I don't know if you can see here it's like uh oh my god i can see it all you that's know fantastic. there's stick and there's i have it. electric kilns outside and um um uh, and uh i've got a, a an old electric kiln that i've taken all the elements out that i have to finish drilling some holes in to use for for Raku. The Raku stuff that's on my website was done at, at a friend's Raku place. And, yes. But yeah, I it's still I, I when I when we moved out of the Bay Area to New Mexico, to, just south of Santa Fe, uh, we looked for places that would have that had studio space. So my wife has a, a painting studio next to this space. The builder new uh and he actually is is a ceramicist as well so he helped uh he was he was fine with helping set up making sure there were studio spaces and then in what is sort of our second bedroom uh guest room i have a section where all my music equipment is and all my you know computer music studio setup so when, when i retired it was like Okay, you know, a lot of people like, oh, what am I going to do with myself? And for me, it was just like, oh, now I can, you know, I walk the dog in the morning. There's this place called the Galisteo Basin, has all these trails. Go out, walk the dog in the morning, come back, have lunch, uh, work in the ceramic studio, or go work in the music studio. And and when the pandemic hit, you know, like uh, what was that, 2020? Because we moved here in 2019. So I had a real routine. And when the pandemic hit, 
it wasn't that big of a deal. It was like, well, I'm just working in my studio anyway. And you miss seeing your friends or going out to dinner. But, um, you know, for a long time, we everybody kept thinking this isn't going to go for very long. So, no, this yeah, is true. I, so it, it wasn't like this huge, oh, my God, I'm, you know, I'm stuck in a little apartment with nothing to do, you know. Yes. And absolutely. we have a lot of open space around us. We're on like three acres of land. And so, you know, I'd work in the studio for a while, go out and walk around on the land and, you know, with the dog and get some air and come back, do some more stuff. And, you know, so it, it's in that sense, it's been great because, um, you know, even though I'm not doing anything professionally, either with either ceramics or music, I, I still completely love doing it it's you know yeah. and i'm able to so but you're not in new mexico now are you yes yeah oh because i remember we yeah. went, we we went um because that's the place where Giorgio o'keefe sort of did a lot of right. paintings wasn't right. it and i remember we yeah. we were yeah. driving somewhere and we came to across, across a place called madrid and it just was just like an old mine madrid. yeah they call it and, madrid Ah, yeah. Okay, and it's just full of artists and galleries and coffee shops. Yeah. Um, so that's yes, just I, that's like about that's like about twenty minutes, half an hour south of us. Yeah. Oh right. Madrid. So what was north yeah, of you? Because we came from was it um, what was Santa Fe was Santa it? Fe. That's yeah. Right. So you're yeah. south of Santa south of Santa Fe, but north of Madrid. Right, we're about like you know twenty minutes just south of of Santa Fe, southeast a little bit. Oh, and nice. actually, Deborah now lives in in what's called Raton, New Mexico, and she's about two and a half hours uh, northeast of where I am, and up up by the Colorado New Mexico border. And oh, we've actually uh, met up a couple times since she's moved here. Uh, nice, but it's yeah, it's. You know the 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 paint the George O'Keefe paintings, that is the landscape here. You know it's um, when I was in the Bay Area, you know the the sky would start like three quarters of the way up. Yes, <laughs> and here the sky is eating up three quarters of your view. You know it's just there's a low horizon line and lots of sky, lots of amazing clouds and. Um, sunsets are incredible in fact we just it's you know what march um 21st and we just had snow this morning it snowed for like four or five hours and just stopped like at 11 o'clock um bizarre yeah so it's it's crazy sometimes the weather here is just so different and it, it you know it, it's also very dry which I like because even though it could be 30 degrees and in the Bay area, if it was 50 degrees, it'd be damp and your bones would be hurting and you'd feel achy and cold here. It can be 30 degrees and it's so dry. You're just like, Oh, I'm walking outside. It's okay. You know, no big deal. Yes. Blimey. It's I, I remember that road trip so well. We, uh -huh. we just, it was one of our highlights of our life. I think we were Santa Fe to Albuquerque, wasn't it? And yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. So you went down through the sideways. Yeah. To go to through Madrid. Yeah. Yes. Cause we thought that. No, looks it's, like a... It, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful area. And um, there is one of the interesting things here more so than anywhere else in the United States 
the um, the pueblos here yes. were never conquered. They were never taken over, and so the 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 tribes. I'm forgetting the actual tribe, um, uh, Navajo. Uh, they, oh, it's not Navajo for the pueblos. I forget now, but but they were uh, Hopi, I think. But they they never were chased out, and and so it's the uh, the only uh, indigenous. Tribal area in the U.S. that they never got kicked out, and so there is a huge uh, awareness of indigenous people in this state, and the government pays a lot of attention. And uh, uh, they're like the the PBS station here. You know the yes. public. They have there's four channels. <laughs> that you can pick up over the air, digital TV. And two of them are, are just uh, dealing with indigenous uh, peoples, you know, with shows and things on how to make um, uh, 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 regalia and, and documentaries and music. And it's, it's the most focused on indigenous people's place in the United States that, that I've ever seen way more than California. Yeah. Yes. God damn. Yes. Cause it's all that area where things like, I, th I think we went to white sands and Roswell and yeah. all those yeah. other places as well. Yeah. And Abiquiu where, yeah, George O'Keefe lived and that's right. And truthful consequence. That was the other place. Yeah. Yeah. That's further yeah. South. No, there's, there's, it's a really interesting mix here because you have, you have the indigenous tribes, you have people from Mexico, because at one point this was part of Mexico, and then you have the Spanish. And so there's these, and then there's actually people who came here, Jewish people who came here, who still, who then ended up kind of having to take on Christian elements, uh, but still have these certain traditions that are Jewish traditions, and they're not quite sure, like, why do we do this? You know? <laughs> but, but so you've got, like, all that Catholic Spanish type stuff, you know, with the churches and the yes. crosses and everything, but then you've got all the indigenous uh, tribal and and Mexican elements that, uh, especially the tribal elements that are not related to Christianity at all. So it's it's a real interesting mix here. It's I it's would pretty amazing. That is that is just so brilliant. I'm so pleased. Yes, I I remember. So where is it that you are? You've got San Francisco. You're you're north of Madrid, but south of no Santa Fe. South of Santa Fe. Yes. Yeah. If you look up, if you look up um, on the map, if you look up. Uh, El Dorado and Lamy. So we're technically in Lamy just before uh, the the main part of Lamy. Right. Oh, See, yes. And the, and, and the railroad was going to go, you can take from Lamy, you can get on the train here, the, the um, I'm forgetting the names of the, of the company, but you can get on the train and go to LA or you can go to Chicago. And yes. the train from L.A. was originally going to go to Santa Fe, but the the story was that the people who owned the land in Santa Fe that the train would have gone on 
wanted way too much money for it. They were greedy. And so the train company said, screw you, we'll just go south and <laughs> we'll go to Lamy. And so there's a train station, you know, like 10 minutes away from us. Um, and that's the main, there is a train station in San Francisco too. But so now there's a train that's owned by a group of people, one of them being George R.R. R. Martin of right. uh, Game of Thrones fame. And they've painted the train to look like it's painted with dragons and stuff. And so they do these runs from Lamy to, to Santa Fe and back. And and you can have drinks and parties and stuff on the train. And Wow. It's a, so it's, a perfect it's, place. It's an interesting area. You know, the the... The winter has gone on much too long this year. Like I said, yes. it's March 21st and we had snow this today. And <laughs> I'm kind of tired of it. It's like, yes. uh, okay. Well, I know. Happy, happy spring equinox. But yeah, I'll, the January, February has been fine, but March has been a little bit boring, but it's all right. It's, well, it's, it's, are you in are you in an in an area where you get all the like the sort of the dampness? Are you near the coast or yeah, it's not been too bad, actually. To be honest, I expect we haven't had that much rain. Yeah, it hasn't felt that wet. So we're not that close to the coast. It's it's quite lucky where we live in Norwich. So it's fine, actually. So uh -huh. it's good. It's good. Oh, look, and, your part, and your partner is, is doing ceramics. Well, she, you know, she works at the UEA, the university, but she loves doing, you know, this is her sort of um, little sort of side hobby yeah. passion and yeah. so she's got her kiln she's got the wheel she's got her pottery you know and she loves messing around being creative so you know yeah so, yeah and um yes we still talk fondly of our sort of desert trips that we road trips around new mexico and arizona and you know those states because those national parks and desert landscapes were just magical you know just absolutely yeah utah has some amazing i mean and a lot of these areas um there, they were there. They were and still being used in all sorts of movies yes. and westerns and whatever. Did oh, you God. ever watch? Did you ever watch the series um, Breaking Bad? No, I didn't. Okay. But uh, <laughs> I think it well, was yes. That that was probably filmed around there, wasn't it? It was filmed all around Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and and there's we're ten minutes walk away from a railroad track and a big trestle that was used in uh i think the last the last year of the series right. where there's an episode where they have to take a big truck and and park they make it look like it broke down on the railroad track so they can stop a train and they can take the the two the tank that has all this special chemical that he he needs for making meth is right on the trestle and they have already ahead of time buried two tanks underneath the trestle one with water and one empty and they drain the one the tank of chemicals and then fill the tank back up with water and uh yeah. and that's so we're our neighborhood is sort of partly on the the Breaking Bad tours that they do. <laughs> yes. Well, it's funny. I've just been looking at the map and now I can, it all comes back, Flagstaff and the Petrified Forest and um, Phoenix yeah. and Sedona. We went to quite a bit. It was, all, yeah. it was, uh, they were magical, you know, it's a magical place. And uh, it's, a, it's an, I mean, the, the, the U S has so much 
you know, I mean, you can, you know, in, when you go to something like Yosemite or there's those kind of, you know, the national parks and yeah. then the Southwest and, um, you know, then I'm, I'm not as familiar. I mean, we, we were, when we were on tour, we saw a little bit of England, but not a whole lot. And, uh, yes, you know, That's so I'm not as familiar with what England has in, you know, I know they have like where the the Stonehenge area and those kind of places, and up, you know, I know people have gone to Scotland and yeah. Ireland. It's you know. all good. It's all good, but yeah, yeah. there's something about yeah. getting away to the the desert landscapes and looking at those big skies and big cactuses. It's amazing. But yes, well, look, thank you ever thank so you. much. Yeah, I hope that I get you know. Did I answer all the questions? All you the had? questions in in great detail, and you know, re and um, I'm just looking forward to sort of exploring some more of your the back catalogue actually and your website. So um, yeah, yeah, I'll put the web, I'll put the link up, and also I'll send you a link to the interview as well, so you can always use okay it wherever you want. So they would be magic. And but you look, know, on on the Romeo Void website, I have put up some live stuff too. Yes. And, uh, you know, when we were also, when we, we had, I, I think it was, yeah, we had just come out with our first album and we got a chance to open up for this uh, new band that was just coming to America. And we played at a college with them. And then we did two shows in San Francisco with them uh, at a, a Bill Graham club. And uh, it was these guys from Ireland called U2. <laughs> oh, right, yes. And uh, and I hope they, they and we, that. We continued. We did a show with them in L.A. Uh, uh, later on when Never Say Never was big. And then we also played with them at the San Francisco Civic Auditorium. Uh, and there was a band called The Alarm that opened for the show. And then we played and then U2 played. So What a lineup. So I think we did like six, five or six shows with them. Excellent. It's a nice little story, isn't it? It's it's just interesting. We had we got to play with Gang of Four, with you two, um, a couple other people, but that was yeah, those were both really influential bands yes. to us in some ways. Yeah. Probably now you look at the ticket price, you think, hmm, that was quite a bargain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Us yeah. old folk have no idea. We can't comprehend ticket prices, can we? We can't comprehend a few things, but ticket prices is one of them. Well, it's like that whole thing about the Taylor Swift tickets and the whole controversy over all that happened with that. And it's just insane. It's just yes. it's another world. I just I just think yeah. I just go, my God, we spent two fifty to see three bands in the eighties, and um... <laughs> is there is there a uh, like a small club scene where you are where you yes. can see younger bands? And yeah, there's still a there's still a alternate, you know, there's still venues for those hundred, two hundred bands. Yeah, I mean, there's still about. I mean, you hear obviously a lot of cities get problem with noise and residents, you know, because you know suddenly they they convert something that's residential property near yeah. a venue, and then there's a problem with noise, but I mean, there's still there's still a vibrant scene, but you know, I think as you guys get old, you don't quite understand how anything works anymore. Remote controls being one, but um, <laughs> you know, you just you know, ticket prices being the other, don't you? Well, yeah, five hundred yeah. pounds to see Adele. Hmm. Um, yeah, no thanks. Yeah, <laughs> are you familiar with the band called the National? They're an American band. No, 
Check out the National. Um, they're a very interesting band. Oh they're, yes, the National. They yes. they are huge without any kind of airplay, and I've seen them several times now in concert, and um, uh, they're just really an interesting band. Yes, uh, and. Uh, the oh. vocalist is a you know kind of a baritone, low, quiet type singer Matt Berninger, mm. and then the, the two guitar players are, are brothers, and the and the drummer and the bass player are brothers. Yes. And one of the guitar players did a couple projects with Taylor Swift uh, during the pandemic, some more acoustic oriented stuff. Um, and then one of the brothers has done work with like symphonies and and scoring. He scored some really interesting films. And uh, but they're yeah they're they're definitely a band worth um, you know checking out. Yeah, uh, so we'll, we'll I like their listen. I like their stuff. Yeah. Who are you, who do you listen to that I would maybe want to check out? Who's on <laughs> like who's on your who, who on would you go radar. to? I said um, to be honest. I know I have to look at my Spotify playlist. I keep adding bits too. I think one of the things, this is sounding really sad, really, but I do, I am still discovering a lot of things that I missed in the 80s and 90s. That I think, oh, actually, I must listen to that now. So for new bands, I think it's really hard for me to listen to a new rock band without thinking, oh, they remind me of such and such a band. Oh, actually, I'll just go and play such and such. So I think it's, yeah, I mean, this... I know it's a terrible, you know, it's it's not very good, is it? Just to say, but I do because when when music was happening when when I was you know about, you know, you could just miss things, and it was sometimes difficult yeah. to sit to sort of hear it. It was difficult to buy them. You know, sometimes you thought, well, look, I like all these bands, and more bands are happening, and I can't listen to all of them. You know bizarrely um and then decades later you go back and you think oh actually i'm quite interesting you know i didn't particularly like goth music i didn't like probably quite a few bits and uh, bits and pieces like depeche mode and then i sort of listen to them now i think oh actually they're quite good i quite like depeche mode so um yeah, yeah. Well, it's a lot of times it depends on which songs they're because de- like a band like depeche mode really went through a lot of changes they did i mean and I they think- were influenced by nine inch nails at one point i'd read that they did some shows with them and and uh Tr- trevor whatever his name is you know the the singer from depeche mode really kind of went oh okay we don't have to be all poppy we can no. be a little he got, he, got, he got into his dark side, didn't he? Oh, bless his thoughts. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I was just, I was just gonna, I don't, I won't be able, for some reason, my internet isn't loading up because sometimes I just see, hear a song or I read the review, the reviews in the, you know, like the Guardian or even the Financial Times, they do record reviews and there's yeah. these records and, and I'll pick a few songs on Spotify and I put them on the playlist. And, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, that's good. And sometimes it's like, mm, not sure, really. Though it's well, their record. Yeah. So it's it's interesting, really. So, um, I mean, yeah. like someone like Amy Winehouse was, you know, she was, I listened to her a lot when she came, when she was around. That was, yeah. that was kind of a nice, you know, oh, here's someone who's actually good and not doing, you know, like silly pop. Yeah, uh, so there was there was you know, and it's surprising how many people from you know back in the eighties and probably seventies are still making music and they're still getting excited yeah. about their next project. So I don't know. I, I I still I do enjoy 
now because in the old days you couldn't you know sort of hearing what people are rating you know records of the of the week and then just sort of getting a few tracks from each album and playing and sort of feeling a bit excited but underwhelmed at the same time but that's you know that's just what old people say isn't it really but it's still nice well, i mean I, you know there there's there's a lot of what i also started listening to at one point was more going more into the kind of the techno instrumental world and listening to things there just because i got tired of a lot of these bands where it sounds like they're singing their diary yes know? we don't we don't like diary songs they're not good you at know? all are they and uh, yeah so, you uh, know and so and also just as someone who makes music i i found it really interesting to hear people doing different kinds of sounds and things and you know different sorts of production you know yes and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. A massive thank you. This is Romeo Void and the bass player Frank Zinkovich, who, as I said, the band have got a live recording that's coming out. Part of Record Store Day. This is April 2023, oh, just in case you're listening to this years later. Um, this is the live um, from the Mabula Gardens, November the 14th, 19. 80. I will post the link below. This has been the C86 Show, David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.